Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. Some years ago, the senior pastor of what is the largest church in America was on television and in response to an interviewer, Larry King, and his question about his preaching method and his hesitancy to mention hell, he said this, quote, I don't believe in that. I don't believe maybe it was for a time, but I don't have it in my heart to condemn people. I'm there to encourage them. I see myself more as a coach, as a motivator, to help them experience the life God has for us, end quote. And King then came back and asked, but don't you think if people don't believe as you believe, they're somehow condemned? And the pastor said, you know, I think that happens in our society, but I try not to do that. I tell people all the time, preached a couple of Sundays about it, uh, I'm for everybody. You may not agree with me, but it's not my job to try to straighten everybody out. And so I don't know. I know there's condemnation, but I don't feel that's my place. People, if that's not the place of a pastor and a preacher, then whose is it? I mean, why do you show up at our church? Whether it's online during this pandemic season of life or in person. Most of you would say maybe for worship, the reason of worship. And I'm sure that would be the first answer for many of you. And then maybe fellowship for others or a combination thereof. And that makes sense. But my hope is that you understand that the reason you should be here is to worship God, yes, but he seeks worshipers in spirit and in truth. And that means singing, praying, and preaching the truth. So the Apostle Paul wrote in this second letter to Timothy that the truth, the proclamation of it, is the pillar, the column that supports the church. And you're going to find out the reason in this text why that's so. Why the primacy of preaching is essential to your not only becoming a Christian, but in growing in maturity as a Christian, and then developing as a disciple maker of other disciples, as well as being able to endure life, all the hardship that we're going to have to be going through, which is why we call this series The Fight of Faith. And so Paul's giving Timothy and us here an argument for the primacy of preaching for God's people. He gives us the purpose of preaching and then the perseverance we have, have to have in order to hear it and to preach it and do it. And there's application here for all of us, believe me, not just me right now. So let's look at this purpose that comes in the first four verses for starter. I'm going to read again verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Preach the word. Be prepared. Be ready. And we're starting with these two verses because they have tremendous meaning and significance, not only to me as a pastor, but to you as a church congregation in a local church. Because we talk about majoring in the majors of doctrine, right? Well, here's a big mama doctrine right here. They don't get much bigger than this one. And the first thing worth noting here, again, Paul is 
solemnly charging, earnestly in the original Greek language, he's testifying as if he was a witness on the witness stand under oath, saying something, telling God what Timothy is to do. Before God, he is telling Timothy, this is what God is telling you to do. So verse 1 begins in the original language with this idea that this is serious business. It's a command, it's a call to action before God, before God the Son, the Father, the kingdom has begun. He's telling Timothy, in essence, with this command, pay attention, heads up. This is real. This is a priority. And then what follows in verse 2 consists of this command for preachers to preach the word of God. So the purpose of preaching is here. You're going to get the how to preach, beginning with the when. It's followed with a series of five different features of what preaching does. So what you have here, folks, this is the pastor and preacher's playbook right here. This is the manual for the minister. This is the how-to of what we are to do in the primary part of our ministry. Particularly, this is particularly why you need to pay attention to this message because it's going to help for you to determine where and why you go to church and commit to the fellowship of a local church. When the church was birthed, we see this passage played out. It's in action. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit moved on believers and the apostles. And I want you to turn to Acts, the book of Acts, in the second chapter, if you would. And in the book of Acts, you're going to see the very first thing that the apostle Peter does. What is the first thing that Peter does? Preach the word. First sermon in church history, right here. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. And then he proceeds to give Joel's Old Testament prophecy and how that would begin to be fulfilled right then and there. And then Peter, in the message, he preaches Christ as Messiah, Christ crucified, the gospel, and he makes a call to repentance right there in the first sermon. I want you to look at it. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were what? Cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. By the way, that exposition of Scripture and the Gospel, that was no short little story or homily or a little sermonette for Christianettes. Look at verse 40 if you're following in that chapter. And with many other words, many other, he bore witness and continued to what? Exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So right there, as we've talked about before from Psalm 19 and 119, the preached word converts the soul of whoever God wants to see converted. So the command is preach the word. Let's break that down so you get it real clear. To preach is to publish or openly proclaim news. 
It is to announce something that's been done. The word gives the idea in the Greek, and always through history, that at that time that there was a degree of formality to it, gravity with an authority that needed to be heard and heeded, like we just heard from Peter. In fact, the word itself, literally, Caruso, referred to a town crier, which is a herald. It's where we get the Miami Herald. It heralds or proclaims news. And a herald or town crier, what they would do, would they would go into the middle of a town, like a main street area, and proclaim loudly a message, news. Before there was radio, TV, internet, it was done that way about the news from a king in preparation for the coming of that king. So that's what we still do here. I'm doing it right now. And Paul's telling Timothy and me that my job and of our elders, whoever comes to preach here to you at CCC, like Peter, is to come and say, hey, we have news from God, from King Jesus about himself and about you about himself and his infinite value and majesty and power, and about the nature of man and sin and salvation, the hope of it. And so we have good news for you too, and that's gospel. So this is the job description of a church elder or a pastor as priority number one. We call it the primacy of preaching. And when the apostles, listen, so you see how serious and dedicated this is. When they needed ministry help, the first apostles with the serving needs in the church, I want you to look at Acts chapter 6, where we get the idea, the reason why we have deacons and servants to begin with in the early church. Acts chapter 6, verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the ministry of the word, prayer, is what a pastor is to do more than anything else, more than administration, more than counseling, more than all of his ministry duties as important and necessary as they are. Preach the word. What does Paul mean by the word? One single word? Is that it? Well, we get all kinds of clues. We get the definition in this chapter and throughout this letter. He tells us there's going to be times when professing Christians are not going to endure sound teaching in verse 3. He says they're going to drift away from false teaching and error in verse 4. And that gives you a little bit of context or background right there because that statement assumes that it's people in the church that are being exposed in and around the church to false teaching, dangerous teaching elsewhere. And so the preaching of the word in the church gathering has to correct all of that. And so Paul warned of that in chapter 3 when he exhorted young Timothy to, remember, continue in the gospel and the doctrine and the word he began receiving as a child. Remember that? He called the word there the sacred or holy writings of Scripture. He was referring both to the Old Testament, New Testament together. The New Testament was verbal tradition at that time being passed around as it's being written in the first century to all that region. And the word was inspired. We looked at that ultimately written by God through the human authors and then given to the church, right? And then as we've seen, 
he continues here this argument for Scripture through the end of chapter 3, flowing right into chapter 4. Okay, there's no chapter and verse divisions in the original copies of the Bible. It all flows together, one thought here, about the sufficiency, the necessity, the credibility of the Scriptures, so that the Christian would be ready to withstand, to deal with anything that comes our way in the faith and practice of the Christian life. So in essence, Paul's telling Timothy, feed the flock, preach all of the Bible. In fact, in his final words, kind of a swan song to the Ephesian elders, Paul, on his last journey before heading back to Rome, he, he reminded them in a very emotional farewell. He said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Literally, that means all the revealed wisdom of God. That's the word of God. That's the word. That's the whole Bible. The word means the whole Bible. So that means, people, that we're not talking about clever stories. We're not talking about self-help topics, ear-tickling preaching. We'll talk about that in a moment. I mean, as an example, I already mentioned the pastor of the largest and I guess the most popular church in America, and he preached sermons last year on things like this. Dare to ask big. Love yourself. Change your name. Bless yourself. Empty out the negative. See yourself as royalty. Invest in yourself, etc., etc., in yourself, in yourself. And I actually took a little time this week to listen to one of those messages. And the preacher said he would teach the Word of God, but there was no teaching of the Word of God. He didn't mention a, even a text of Scripture until he got about 15 minutes into the sermon. And he showed the congregation his Bible, but he really failed to open it up. He failed to herald or declare it. What it says, what it means by what it says, accurately. In contrast, though, the Bible gives us a completely different picture of preaching and its relationship to worship, corporate worship of God's people. When Ezra, the scribe, opened the Word of God, as I'm turning to the 8th chapter of the book of Nehemiah, Ezra opened the Word, the Old Testament law of the Lord. He was doing that as the Jews were settling back into the holy city, Jerusalem. The walls were rebuilt. They're coming out of captivity. Listen to the flow, Nehemiah 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring what? The book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they had heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning, from early morning until midday, mind you, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform. Might have been something like an early pulpit. And he did that, and, he, and that was made for that purpose. And then after he talks about all the different priests that were there to help, it says, Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood and then verse 8 says there, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and listen, and they gave the sense so that the people understood 
the reading. I want to give you now a New Testament parallel to that. If you go into the book of Acts in the 17th chapter, Paul and Silas traveled to Thessalonica. They would first go to the Jews in the synagogue there locally to preach. Acts 17 verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, went three in a row, a series, he reasoned, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and arise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. That's what preaching is. Old covenant and new. And I love what Paul told the Thessalonians in his first letter to them, to that church. He said, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. See, that's what preaching is supposed to do to people that are faithful to the word. Preaching is to come from the Bible and is to give the sense of Scripture what it means to the people, explaining, proving what God has said. This is where we get the idea, you've probably heard this phrase before, expository preaching. Expository preaching. That simply means to explain or exposit what the Bible says, what it means by what it says, beginning with what it meant to its original audience back then and there, and then help give you an understanding of what you are to do with what it says and means today. So for the expositor, the big idea, the main idea of the message should come from the main idea of the text itself. That's how you're preaching the word. Because it's what you need in biblical church preaching wherever you go. It may not be what you think you want, but I would argue, as per the scripture here, it is what you need. We need vegetables in our diet, don't we? Veggies, eh. Some of you can feel my pain on that. But you know what? They're healthy. I eat some. You know, you may not want veggies, but your body was made to need them, to get those nutrients. Well, you may not want Bible-saturated, God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, expository preaching all the time, but God says that's what you need. It's what you got to have. Whether you like it or not, that's what you need. And today, we're in a season or a time in Christianity where sermons are supposed to be hip. Can't imagine, can't mention hell. That's not welcoming. Who wants to hear that in church? Problem is, that's precisely what people need. Full gospel preaching begins with hell and judgment. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians, all I do is preach Christ crucified. He basically was saying nothing else. The message is Christ crucified, and Christ was crucified because hell-bound sinners exist. And then Paul, here in verse 2, he gives four purposes of preaching. You're going to get this. Two negative, two positive. And the first two purposes are things that true Bible preaching does. The negative commands of reproving and rebuking. 
When preaching reproves, what does that mean? It means it's shedding light on something from the Greek. It has that idea. It's exposing something to the light, like sin. It's a word that has the idea of bringing the conviction of sin or even guilt to somebody's conscience. It's showing someone where they're at fault. And preaching should do that. As this month's memory verse we're going to start tells us, Hebrews 4.12, where the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts even down to the bone and the marrow, the spirit, the heart. Right? Paul's letters are so clear in him doing that, in giving rebuking scripture. And you're going to need to do this when you're sharing your faith and you're doing some preaching to people that think they're religious and they're righteous and they think they're, they're good enough to earn heaven. You want a little taste of that? I go to Romans, take you to chapter 3. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's a reproof. A biblical preaching reproof that is necessary. When you preach, you've got to repeat that scripture to someone. You ever heard about the Romans road? Talking about evangelizing, there you see it. It's a necessary rebuke from God to bring conviction to the conscience by the power of the Spirit that they need God's grace. John 16. So you're preaching the law to the proud. Usually, that's what's going to happen more often than not. And this is why biblical preaching should humble folks, if not even humiliate the listener, if they are sinning and unredeemed. That's why the word is described also as a fire that devours people, according to Jeremiah. In fact, that preacher, known as the weeping prophet, he also said the word of God is to be preached like a hammer that breaks pieces, breaks the rock in pieces. Preaching is not about just giving information, folks. It is about life transformation. Otherwise, you know what I would do? I would just tell you all, go home, read the book, or just go to seminary. But we all need to go to church to hear God's word preached in this way. And then likewise, to rebuke someone is to correct someone. Parents do it with children constantly, right? They have to. And parents and even disciples have to. God, our Father in heaven, is the same, does it with us. Because we're talking God's law, rules, precepts, commands that have to be given for right living. And when someone makes a significant mistake in Scripture, and you better get that right, they need to be told, according to Scripture, where they're going wrong. We talked about the sufficiency of Scripture. That the Bible, similarly... Same idea, is profitable or useful for reproof and correction in chapter 3, right? Here it's just moving it into preaching. As someone once said, sermons should comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Yeah. So we use the Bible with wisdom rather than personal opinion to rebuke. And then here's a positive. Exhort. Do this. Exhort which literally is a form of encouragement in preaching. It can be a comforting word from God, the same word we get for the role of the Holy Spirit, the one that comes alongside as a counselor, as a teacher. He'll do that with disciples. In fact, it's also a call to action to do that, to teach, offer help, counseling. 
In fact, for example, when the first time in the New Testament the word for preaching or heralding appears in the New Testament, who said it? Jesus, the greatest preacher who obviously ever lived and living. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you and I are to do that whenever we present the gospel, hopefully. That's an exhortation. That's a call to repentance, to action. And you know, the word is amazing and that preaching can do all of these kinds of things in one message to more than one kind of person in a church congregation or a group of people. As I turn to the Gospel of John in the 8th chapter, it's so interesting. This is the story of the uh, adulterous woman. Remember, Jesus is dealing with the scribes and the Pharisees, and uh, they're being reproved. He's rebuking them. He's teaching them at the same time. He's exhorting and teaching the woman because the Pharisees try to trip up Christ. You might remember with the idea of stoning the adulterous woman. She was breaking the law of Moses in the Torah. And they hadn't examined their own hypocritical hearts. So listen to the Lord Jesus in John 8, verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they heard his preaching. They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Okay? Those Pharisees were trying to take a speck, a speck out of the eye of this woman with this humongous log in their own eye. And then the Lord gives this exhortation to the woman, John 8:10. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. But then he adds this. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Exhortation and encouragement in one phrase of preaching. It's the idea of leading people to right Christ-like living. That's how the word of Christ works. In season and out of season. Now, you've heard of that phrase before. What does that mean? Well, the idea in that phrase is that the word is to be preached consistently, persistently, whether it's convenient or not, whether it's popular or not, whether it's accepted, tolerated by the culture, good times or bad, bigger crowds, smaller crowds. Preach the word in season and out of season. Kairos, not chronos, which is chronological time. Kairos is a season or era of time. And one of the ways we know, folks, that we are currently preaching out of season, as I've mentioned before in the last couple of messages, is that our society, our culture, some scholars even, they question or deny the inerrancy and therefore the sufficiency of Scripture. There have been times when many, if not most people in Western civilization, at least over church history, they believed that doctrine, the inerrancy and the sufficiency of the Bible. We were in a Christian culture. This country fit that season to varying degrees from our foundation to, I would say, historically, maybe the mid-20th century or so, off and on. But then there have been times over history, like the one we're in now, where man-centered church leaders, some theologians, and people at large, they doubt the truth of the Bible. 
and therefore they would say it is insufficient and unnecessary. We're out of season. I don't have to convince you of that. If you're a feminist-leaning person, you're going to say the Bible is out of date, it's flat-out wrong, or interpreted wrongly when it speaks to church leadership and the leadership of the home. It's out of season for the sexual revolutionaries. They say the Bible doesn't really mean, it can't mean what it clearly says about sexuality and homosexuality, can it? I mean, the Bible's teaching sexual purity, that's passe, man. That's a drag. Out of season, right? Why? Because it says in verse 3, people will not endure. They will not listen. They will not put up with sound doctrine. And the funny thing is, this society loves the word tolerance, but they don't even know how to define it. They don't know what tolerance means, including tolerance for the Bible and Christians that try to preach it. So the idea here is acknowledging there's going to be times like this, and this is one for sure, in which people want to follow their own desires and their lusts, and they're going to reject biblical preaching and teaching that convicts and contradicts their desires. And they're going to gravitate towards what they want to hear and how they want to hear it and from who they want to hear it. This is why we've seen a rise over the last generation, plus in man-centered, not God-centered, man-centered preaching. This is why in the megachurch, seeker-sensitive church movements, you have services, worship services, that look and feel like rock concerts, down to the dim lighting, smoke machines, props, dramas, all of that stuff. Why? Because it's meant to draw, not offend, crowds. Many of those preachers, some really well intended, but they think that sound in doctrine, sound doctrine, the godly, reproving, rebuking, exhorting, biblically based, expositional preacher we're talking about, they think they're going to drive, that's going to drive people away. It's too long, it's too boring, it's too harsh. I mean, what do they do with Hebrews 13:4 if they come up alongside that? Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Who wants to hear that? Too much of that truth gets in the way of a good time or a pleasant worldly church experience, doesn't it? And you know what? By and large, biblical preaching of the word, simple church worship and fellowship, that is going to keep a good number of people away. Even professing Christians, those are the people mentioned in verse 3. It's experience over exposition. And that's why we see so many charismatic and consumer-based churches are packed when they're allowed to meet. Worldly believers, churchgoers, like services that remind them of what the flesh enjoys, which is often entertainment, that which is fleshy, pseudo-miraculous. And Paul warned Timothy about that similarly in 1 Timothy. If it's not a big show in the service, then it's therapeutic deism again. I mentioned that phrase last time. That's a message where God is your doctor. He's your shrink. And he wants you healthy, happy, and wealthy with seven steps to a much better life now. That's the ear-tickling preaching that Paul's talking about here. Because it sounds good. To have your ear tickled, literally, so you understand that phrase, is to be aroused, to be stimulated by something. 
excited by something that you see or hear would normally refer in a generation past in my lifetime to something new like adulterous men. It said they had a seven-year what? Itch. They needed something new, an itch to scratch, a mistress. Well, many American churchgoers want something different, something new, sensational. On Sunday, not just Bible. And if you give me Bible... Again, it's because the Bible's a me book, right? It's about me. It's for me. Though that is the exact opposite of the purpose of the Bible and preaching that God is laying out in His Word. People want stories. That's the myths and the legends in verse 4. Lots of jokes. Worship music. It's got to rock. Make me want to dance. and has to be longer, longer than the sermon. I'll give you a little illustration what people will tolerate in the mid-18th century. Not so well-known, but very respectful English preacher named John Berridge. He was anointed by God, and he was preaching. Revival was taking place in parts of the UK in his ministry. He'd rise up really early in the morning to preach. He'd have a lousy little breakfast and then mount a horse on these unpaved roads, ride really long distances to reach the people. And he would preach multiple sermons in a day, day after day. And Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, he wrote a little bio on Berridge, and he said, a complaint was lodged against him, and the bishop of that region sent for him and reproved him, reproved him for preaching at all hours and on all days. My lord, said he, modestly, Berridge, I preach only at two seasons. Which are they, Mr. Berridge? In season and out of season, my lord. Berridge understood what that meant. And he wasn't preoccupied with what people wanted to hear or how they wanted to hear it or how often they were going to hear it or when they wanted to hear it. Listen, God cares more about your holiness than your temporary and superficial happiness. If you're holy, ultimately, deeply, you will be happy. He cares more about that for our church than the size of the church. Our job as church pastors and preachers is to get you into the depth of your walk, and he will take care of the breadth, width, size of the church. Or to put it another way, God wants our elders to be more concerned about the quality of life in our church than the quantity of this church. And then Paul, in writing a kind of a similar parallel type text to, to Titus, another church planting pastor. And he was talking about the Lord bringing the gospel to the world. And Paul had the occasion to tell Titus this, Titus 2 verse 12, that God was training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that's a deity of Christ verse right there, by the way, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And check this out, verse 15. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. There it is again. So our job when you come through the doors 
of this service or online, logging in, whatever. Our labor is for your salvation and your sanctification, not your satisfaction. Unless your satisfaction is in God. So I do think and pray, I hope, we soon may be getting into an in-season period of preaching again. And that word, by the way, in-season, out-of-season, it also has the idea of an opportune time for doing something. And why do I think that's so? Times in America are pretty hard. I think they may be harder at this time for our society in America since any time since World War II, possibly. Economically, culturally, we're dealing with a pandemic, social and civil unrest, political and ideological division in a post-Christian culture with an election on the way. So this time may be right. This may be in season. We're about to get in for biblical and gospel preaching and teaching to make a comeback in America. I hope so, don't you? That's why verse 2 says preachers have to be impatient. They have to be patient. They have to endure. In fact, all Christians who share their faith have to be patient and endure in witnessing to others. We pray and we preach. And it might take a while. After all, God took a while with you, didn't he? Sure did with me. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And although you may not be a preacher per se in this room, or listening, you're commissioned by Jesus still as a disciple maker. You're responsible to reach people by teaching and preaching the word and the gospel, to obey. Remember Jesus said to the apostles and the disciples, preach all that I have commanded you. Right? So, you're like mailmen. You deliver the message and you patiently wait for it to be opened. Right? We don't give up. His word never returns void. It'll do what it's supposed to do. And by the way, I should take a moment, just a second here, to help you with the understanding that preaching, the verb form here, caruson, it's different from teaching. We're talking about preaching the word. Good preaching includes teaching, as I hope this message is, but not all teaching contains preaching. Do you understand? The heralding preaching, the passionate proclamation of biblical truth, particularly in public. That's preaching. Teaching is the imparting, giving of information and truth, doctrine, giving instruction. That could be a lecture. That could be, for some, a Sunday school class. For us, it's midweek and small group meetings. Our men and women are leading and facilitating Bible studies and a dialogue in order to teach some biblical content. But there's a nuanced difference between preaching and teaching for pastors as well. As Paul said, in fact, he was appointed as both a preacher and a teacher. He delineated both in chapter 1. So good, faithful preachers will do some teaching. Paul said they have to give, after all, sound doctrine, though not all teachers will preach. But they can. And we have to because of our text and what it says in verse 4. Because people will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Listen, people, when we preach here, you need to really listen. You need to listen. As ambassadors of God, I'm going to tell you why, we, why you need to listen. 
We're speaking for the Lord right now. And I take that, we take that very seriously. I have to give an account for that to God when I die. Of everything I've ever said to you. That's serious business. So you need to listen as if God were speaking because what I'm speaking, hopefully being true to, are the very words of God. You should be a good Berean though. Search out the scriptures. Be, hold us accountable. Look at the word as they did with Paul. Because when you're an expositor, the good thing is you don't have to worry about hearing our opinions. Okay? This is verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And every topic comes out of the scripture. God covers it all. This is not about human philosophy, psychology, sociology. There's none of that here. The word is not a self-esteem, self-image thing because our identity is in Christ. We're in a season where we have too much of that already. Too many people have wandered off already to casual, consumeristic Christianity. Too many churches following the marketing formulas of Coca-Cola movies and Taylor Swift. Selling Jesus like a product. That's absurd. Insane. I find it offensive, actually. David Wells, in his excellent book, The Bleeding of the Evangelical Church, he wrote this, quote, For what succeeds in this world is not necessarily what's true or what right, or what is right. Indeed, much that is false and decadent succeeds. A church, if it is really true to itself, is never going to be a worldly success. Its gospel is stupid. In terms of how people perceive it. Many we know are called, but few are choos- chosen. Much seed is sown, but only a little produces a rich harvest. And when Christ returns, is he going to find faith on the face of the earth? That's a great question. There was a big Gallup poll that came out some years ago that revealed that one-third of Americans claim to be born-again Christians. That's roughly over 100 million people. And when the poll then added a few questions about Christian commitment, though, the number started to change. When they asked the respondents of the survey, do you go to church with some regularity? Do you pray with some regularity? And do you have some minimal structure of Christian belief, meaning doctrine? When those tests were added, the figure of over 80, 30% dropped to 8%. And if you were to probe a little bit more and ask people, Are you desiring to live a holy or sanctified life in Christ? And do you have a sufficiently developed biblical or Christian worldview, way of looking at the world? What do you think that number would be? Well, based on some of the ongoing research I've seen, my guess is the figure of Christians like that would be no more than 1% to 2% of the country. Is that scary? Should be. For some of you that are watching and listening, should be, but that's okay, because from the purpose of preaching, finally, very quickly, and we're done, we get in our text, verse 5, the perseverance, the perseverance. As for you, always be sober-minded or clear-minded, endure suffering or persecution, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So that's Paul's answer to the question, so what do we do now? What do I do? What do I do as a pastor at this church? If I want to keep or build a crowd, a community of goats or weeds, then I think it's clear. I've got to give the people what they want to hear, right? I've got to tickle the ears and be a people pleaser rather than a preacher. Isn't that right? Well, the Bible says no. What's the point of that? 
Sinclair Ferguson said, preaching God's word is the central gift of the spirit given by Christ to the church. And that's a great statement. So what I have to do, what we have to do is preach the word in season and out of season, which means all seasons, because by the way, either you're in a season or you're out of it, that means all the time. Preach the word. That's what it means if you think about it. So ministry success for a church, folks, is measured by the faithfulness of the church, of its leadership and its sheep, shepherd and the sheep. It's not any cultural standard like the size of its bodies or building or budget. There was a young preacher that once complained to Spurgeon, a man who had his own struggles, and the man complained he didn't have as big a church as he deserved. And he said, how many people, he asked, how many do you preach to? Spurgeon asked him. The man said, oh, about 100 and then Spurgeon said, that'll be enough for you to give account on the day of judgment. That's true. That's a big responsibility. That's why we have a big responsibility here for you. The job description of a church pastor and preacher has not changed over the last 2,000 years. And it's not going to change until Jesus comes back and the good shepherd finishes the job. Amen? So Paul's told Timothy, be ready for suffering hard times in the church and in life in general. And he's told them in this letter so far, stand for the truth, guard the truth, do the Lord's work, the Lord's way, watch for the Lord in these last days, and just be faithful. Preach the word. So as I close, the idea is the way to be faithful is by the word of God. The scriptures are sufficient for us. It's all we need. By the power of the Spirit, if you're a real, born-again believer of Jesus Christ. The word is necessary, it's authoritative, and it is credible, meaning you can trust it. Therefore, we are to preach it. Everyone here, you have to do the work of an evangelist too. So, what do we do, church, the rest of this year? And going into next, no matter what the Lord brings us, in a world of itching ears, what? Preach the word. To a generation gone astray, preach the word. In a time of moral crisis like this one, preach the word. When people don't want to hear you, preach the word. When false teachers abound, preach the word. In good times and in bad times, what? When people listen and when they don't want to listen, preach the word. Let's pray. Lord, as Paul prayed in Colossians 1, in you we proclaim Christ, we proclaim crucified, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we would present everyone mature in Christ and labor to this. For this we toil, struggling with all of our energy that you would powerfully work within us the Spirit would work within us. So we would say what needs to be said. We would be willing to exhort and reprove and rebuke in bringing the good news of the gospel. This world so desperately needs more than ever at this point in time. We do it in season and out of season. And for those of you that are listening and you're not sure you may not even have believed beginning this message. 
where you stood before God. It is my job in preaching the word to you to tell you that if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are going to hell. And why? Very simply, you're a sinner, you're a rebel, you've broken God's law, and you need to pay for it. If God is a good, just, holy, righteous judge, and he is, somebody has to pay. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness or remission of sins. That's the bad news. You've got to start with the bad news. If you're a sinner and you're a Christ and God rebel, it's bad. But here's the good news, the greatest news in the history of the universe, and that is the hope of glory of heaven in Jesus Christ in that if you commit in your heart today, right now if you're listening, to turn away from your sin and selfishness and you turn to God, you want to turn to God and you want to trust in Jesus alone for having paid the sacrifice for your sins to forgive you on that cross, if you believe in who He is and what He's done for you, then the Bible says by confessing Jesus as Lord, believing He's been raised from the dead, you will be saved. That's good news. That's great news. Don't delay. Do it today. Let's pray. Father, for those that have listened to the word being preached and have been moved by the Holy Spirit of God, which is the means by which people enter the kingdom of God, may there be repentant faith being given out by you in your divine and sovereign grace and that people are turning to you, trusting in Christ as we speak. And we would get a chance to meet, follow up some of them and, and decide these things. In Jesus' name, God's people said, Amen. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage.